So today's sermon is going to be on the 24th Psalm, continuing through most of the Psalms. The Psalm consists of three parts. Each part brings out a different consideration of God. In verses 1 through 2 is the Creator and Great King. In verses 3 through 6 is the Holy God, the Hill of the Lord, and His salvation. And verses 7 through 10 is the glorious king and divine warrior. Oftentimes I will give an introduction to the sermon and then a brief outline. And the truth is that sometimes it's better just to not even give an introduction. Sometimes the scripture alone, sola scriptura, is actually the best introduction that we can add to the sermon. And so today's introduction is the actual chapter 24. All verses 10, beginning with verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that, thy, that seek thy face, O Jacob, say law. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. As it says in Hebrew, Selah, press pause, as we grander his glory. And so let us give God our undivided attention as we go through his beautiful word. Verses 1 through 2, the creator and king. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. The psalm first introduces to us our great creator, the king, who rules over the earth. The Lord owns everything in it and upon it. God owns every person, every place, and everything upon the universe. Every animal and all people make their home on earth, and therefore they are under his dominion. And God has given all of this creation to us that we have dominion over all of it, including our puppy dogs and our kitty cats. Everything in this world we have dominion over. This word fullness in the Hebrew could be translated as everything or all of it is the Lord's. He owns all of everything and everything that I allegedly own is God's. And the reason why I say allegedly own, we have a car that we do not have the pink slip on. The bank owns it. But even that the bank owns that car, the title on that car, God Almighty still owns that vehicle. Everything in this world is the Lord's. Whether we fully own it or not, whatever it's been bought and paid for or not, 
And the good news is, this church has been bought and paid for by the shed blood of Christ, who is our King and head of this church. 1 Corinthians 10.31 even says that we're to even glorify God in everything that we own. Everything we're to glorify God in. I spend much time talking to my mother-in-law at home now that she lives with us. And what man in his right mind would want his outlaw living with him? And then I realized my mother-in-law is a wonderful woman. I'm so glad and so thankful that she's living with us. Even in a 1,200 square foot, one bathroom home. (laughs) But I was sharing with her how even my puppy, as I'm holding my favorite puppy in my hands, how I give thanks to God for that little puppy. God's little creature. I glorify God in our puppies, in our home, in the chair that my mother-in-law sits in, in everything that we have. And this word Hebrew is the Hebrew word tabel, which means the entire globe and all of its inhabitants belong to God. He owns all the cattle on the hill. There's nothing that is not his. His rule is established particularly because he has made the world inhabitable, habitable for us. It says in Isaiah 45, listen to this. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed that earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I am God and there is none else. Because God is a jealous God. I am God and there is no one else. It is all mine, he says. Verse 2. He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Yesterday, of course, every man in this sanctuary was invited to go. And by providence, Brother Nathan went with me and we spent, I'd say, at least seven hours in that boat out at sea. Maybe eight hours. A long time out at sea, way out in sea, out by Santa Catalina Islands. Enjoying God's creation. I know I mentioned this before, maybe I mentioned it too much, but how can we not go out and enjoy God's creation and not talk about it? Not talk about the one who created that creation. The one who is the creator of the creation and the giver of the gifts that even gave us the gift that we can float upon to enjoy his grandeur. The one who allowed him to catch a nice big calico bass that I was jealous of and to catch it and I remember saying to Nathan, do you want to catch it and kill it or, and eat it, or do you want to let it go? He says, let's let it go. He does have a soft side to him, and we let him go. For the glory of God, enjoying that beautiful creation that he has, everything in the air, everything on the land, and everything in the sea belongs to God. He founded it. This phrase, he founded it, in the Hebrew is the word vasad which means to set, to sit down together, to establish, to lay a foundation, to instruct, establish, appoint, or to ordain. These things are ordained by God. And these words, he founded it upon the seas, displays that the Lord has manifested his wisdom through creation and through creating an orderly world. That he put all these things together perfectly for us. He fashioned them perfectly. All of my life, for 61 years, 
I've been able to stare at the stars and still see that the Little Dipper and the Big Dipper still stands as it always has. It's because God ordained the stars to stand just as they are. And when he wills, he will decree them to fall one by one. The Psalms often talk about creation, and so I try not to repeat myself. That's actually why I haven't taught every chapter or every verse of every chapter, because I don't want to be repetitive through this series through Psalms. But it says in Psalm 136, 5 through 6, To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. 1 Corinthians 10.26 For the earth is the Lord's. Who's the earth belong to? It's the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of it belongs to God. The parking lot and every car in it belongs to God. Verse 2 poetically represents Genesis 1 through 10. Again, we speak much of creation through this chapter, and this actually sounds almost like, almost like one of the Psalms that I just taught. But this one, verse Genesis 1, actually looks at the creation from a different angle. And we're all familiar with this popular ten verses. And it says, And in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God turned the lights on, folks. Not Motel 6. Verse 4, And God saw the light, and that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. He called it day. That's where we get the word day from and the word night from. God called it that. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, which were about the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. He named it heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw it was good. Amen. God saw that it was good. It was all good until man came on the scene, wasn't it? If I had been the first man created from dirt, this dirt bag would have done the same thing that the first Adam did. Next is verses 3 through 6. A holy God, his holy hill, and his salvation. Verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist here expresses the nature of fellowship with God. In Old Testament terms, such as ascending the hill of the Lord and standing in his holy place. The hill of the Lord is in reference to Mount Zion. It says in Psalm 2, 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It is also known as your holy hill. It says in Psalm 15, 1, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? It is also known as his holy place. It says in Psalm 24, 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Verse 3b, 
We're starting to get into some, the, some soteriology right here. This is very important to me. It should be important to all of us, and I know it is. Verse 3b asks the rhetorical. Who will be able to stand in God's presence? Who will be able to enter the kingdom of God? Who will be acceptable to God? Three rhetorical questions. The next verse better answers that question. In the next verse, we will glean much soteriology from it. Soteriology is the doctrine of the study of salvation or how one becomes saved. Studying the doctrine of salvation is what the Lord used to grant me repentance from Arminianism. From Arminianism to Reformed theology. And that is, if you ever believed in the evolution of man, that was my evolution. That's how I evolved from Arminianism to Calvinism, to Reformed theology. I thought to myself, if I'm dead wrong in my understanding of soteriology, salvation, then where else am I dead wrong in the scriptures? Hence, I became reformed. Hence, I grasped, embraced all doctrines of grace, all five points of Calvinism. Hence, I enjoy confessionalism. Did not until nine and a half, ten years ago. That was when I attended my first Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference at the La Mirada Church. Couldn't wait to go back to the Corona Church that I attended and beg my pastor and the elders to embrace confessionalism. But they did not. I then grew to understand the regulative principle of worship, which we do here. And then covenant theology. It took a long time for me, covenant theology, to be a covenant theologian. I fled from dispensationalism as Reformed Baptists embraced covenant theology. And now I am a Reformed Baptist. But being a Reformed Baptist does not save us. It's not required to go to heaven. But it was a great part of my sanctification. Verses 4 and 5, staying in context of verse 3b, when we talked about who can stand before the Lord on this day, who can ascend on his holy hill, verse 5 says, here's the answer, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Only his chosen people, only God's elect, Christ's bride, will be accepted by God. Again, we don't accept Jesus to be saved. It was God who accepted us when he saved us. And that is only because of Christ and the sacrifice for his people that we can now be accepted by God. It's only by God's, it's only God's elect, by God's grace, it's only God's elect, that will ascend into this hill of the Lord or stand in his holy presence. Because God will not allow an unrepented, unbloodwashed sinner to stand in his presence. This lifted up his soul on vanity means to set one's affections on vanity. To set my affections upon vanity. Nothing wrong with a Christian owning a motorcycle. But if that becomes your idol, it is nothing but vanity, vanity, vanity. I even remember telling my wife, asking my wife, do you mind if I bring this into the house and put it on the carpet? That's how much I loved it. That's a false god. That is a golden calf with a lot of chrome on it. 
Vanity is the Hebrew word shav, which means things that are evil, things that are destructive. A good thing can actually be evil or destructive. It is also things that are morally guile, or figuratively speaking, here it is, it is idolatry, lying, or any vain thing. Vanity, vanity, vanity. One preacher warns us of vanity. That's a great passage that we should do an exposition on one day. Lord willing. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, The words of the preacher. Oh, I love preachers. Don't you love preachers? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit has a man from his own labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and toward and around the north. The earth whirls about continually and comes again on its own circuit. All the rivers run into the sea. Yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing under the sun. Is there anything of which may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Vanity, vanity, vanity. All of the things of this world, even God's creation, is nothing but vanity without God. The scripture says the flower and the grass fade away. But the Lord and his word endureth forever. So if a person's lifestyle or way of life, their character, conduct, and reputation is known for continually setting their affections upon vanity, as the scripture warns against, then they need a checkup from the neck up. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let a man examine himself, test himself, let him examine the scriptures and test himself to see if he truly is in the faith. It says in Psalm 25, we might be teaching this next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Psalm 25, verses 1 through 3. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed, let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed, let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Or as one theologian said, and I quote, The Lord expects purity and singleness of heart. Oh, you might say, wait a second, that's work salvation. These professing Christians out there that are actually telling you that we're not supposed to strive for holiness. It's a lie. Though we're saved by free, sovereign grace alone, we are to obey commandments in God's word. The Lord expects purity and singleness of heart. From all who seek his presence, 
Purity of hands and heart is the condition of living before God in accordance with his precepts and out of the desire of his heart. Appearance of holiness is not enough because the clean hands are expressive of a pure heart. The one who has clean hands is innocent of wrongdoing and readily asks for forgiveness when he has sinned against God. In contrast is the sinner whose hands are full of blood and who needs cleansing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. I confess before the congregation that this wretched sinner's hands are full of blood. And I confess that I must confess that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that I do need repentance. And I do need salvation from my sins. Amen? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who gets to go to heaven and see God and stand upon and stand upon this holy hill and stand in his place? It's those who have a pure heart. That's who it is. That's who gets to stand on this holy hill, my friends, my beloved church, my brothers and sisters. Only those who are, have spiritually washed hands. I don't think I need to tell you that everybody's washing their hands a lot this year. 2020 is the year of washed hands, isn't it? It's, uh, I admit, I admitted it when I preached Psalm 91 here back in April, May, that I was a little carried away. I had dry, chapped hands. I still wash them a lot. I'm, I'm not ignorant, but I am trusting the Lord while I wash my hands a lot. But it can't help us on Salvation Day. Our masks, which nobody here is wearing, will not cover your sins. Clean hands will not allow us to stand before him on Holy Day, on the, on the Holy Hill. On that day. But the one with the pure heart, the one with blood washed hands through the Lamb of God, the one with the regenerate, circumcised heart, that the Holy Spirit regenerates and circumcises upon salvation, that is the one who stands upon that ascending hill. And will be able to stand before a holy God and be excused of their sins by the grace of God because of what Christ did alone for them. Isaiah 1, 15 through 18 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. I'm going to stop there before I finish that verse, but listen to this. God will not even hear you if your hands are full of blood. There's only one prayer that God hears from the non-saved. And that's the one who God just saved and just chose to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Even as a Christian, the scripture says to the church of Ephesus that my sins hinder my prayer. That if I do not have a right relationship with my wife, which happens because we're sinners, that hinders my prayer. And so it says in Isaiah 1, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. See, God does not hear every prayer because your hands are full of blood. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of evil doing before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Through your, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red, like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
This is a beautiful commandment for Christians. Look at this. Do what is good. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rightfully so, because of this election, this presidential election, many are trying to seek justice. That is a good thing. Lord, reveal the lies if they are. Expose the truth. Seek justice is actually a commandment from God. Church, seek justice. Seek the truth. Tell the truth. Rebuke those oppressors. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Those are commandments of the Lord for us to do as a church. See, once again, that we're saved alone by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In sanctification, in sanctification, God does have expectations and requirements and demands of us. One of the gifts that God bestows to us when he saves us, are you listening to this? It's a dirty word that I'm going to say from this pulpit. It's the R word, repentance. I've preached at two funerals where I was told to not use the word repentance. One of those funerals was my own father's funeral. And I later listened to that sermon and counted them with those little Roman numerals, a little four and a slash for the five. And I counted 13 times I mentioned repentance. 13 times without apology. It is a gift from the Lord, and it comes upon salvation. Show me one man that's never repented, and I'll show you a man that's not saved. Because there is no salvation without repentance. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 13, 3, I tell you that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he said it again in the next in two verses later in Luke 13, 5. Unless you repent, I tell you all, you will all likewise perish. That's one that I love preaching to crowds out on the streets. Pointing to them. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then the purpose-driven Christians on, on, on Facebook will call me nothing but a man who screams and yells at people. But that's what Jesus said. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. By the way, raising your voice, preaching the gospel, that's not being ungentle. And be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps grants them repentance. If God grants them repentance, so that they may know the truth, they have to be granted repentance, so that they may know the truth, and then that they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. It says in Acts 11:18, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It would be boastful and me-centered, as I was when I was in Armenia, and it was about the false deity of me, myself, and I. I repented. I accepted Jesus. I did this and that. Of course, that was wrong, and I've repented. But now I can say that I've repented only because God has granted me that repentance. It came from Him. It's a, it's a gift that He grants to His church. Because repentance is not the cause of salvation. Repentance is because of salvation. 
So in a true believer, there better be a continual lifestyle of repentance, though we will still sin until we're in the box. Though we all fall short, God expects a loyalty from us and a devotion to him from this church, from every one of us individually and corporately as a local church. For those whom are chosen by God and granted repentance, and those uh, those that are chosen by God and granted right by repentance, you will see now in the next verse, in verse 5. Verse 5 says, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift, my friends. And Christ's imputed righteousness is given to us upon that gift. Before entering heaven. And Christ's imputed righteousness is actually required to enter heaven. To enter this sanctuary, it requires a key. To enter the sanctuary requires Christ as the key. It requires his righteousness, his holiness. Because it says in Hebrews, without holiness you will not see heaven. Moving on. Upon salvation, he rewards us with the life of sanctification and growing in holiness, striving for holiness and striving in sanctification. Oh, let us be a church that actually prays for that, that actually begs for that. Let us be a church when you will go before your pastors and ask them, are you being sanctified? Are you growing in holiness? Let us be a church where the pastors can say to you, Are you being sanctified? Are you growing in holiness? That will hold us all accountable, because one thing's for sure about all of us, is we are all sinners, and of course, thank God for our salvation, but now are in need of growing in sanctification and holiness. And he rewards us with the blessing of God's favor. Those whom enjoy, those are the ones who will enjoy the promise of a covenant. As it says in Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 through 26, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On the wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. It's a beautiful benediction. Our Redeemer Christ vindicated his bride. He vindicates his bride. The bridegroom will not accept her to walk down the aisle unless she's been vindicated. Church, that's why I am so against our government. Recently, the United States Supreme Court has sent you an email. And praise God for that. Actually, overruled our unconstitutional, tyrannical, left-wing governor, Gavin Newsom. The Supreme Court, the highest court in the land Thursday, overruled Governor Gavin Newsom and said you cannot restrict worship services. But in spite of that ruling, the governor said, I still will. We're not supposed to be here today. The county of San Bernardino has still said that we're not supposed to be worshiping inside. Governor Gavin Newsom says, I will not obey. But church, we will disobey. The governor and the government has absolutely no business 
telling Christ's bride to put a muzzle on her face. If anybody in Christ's bride wants to wear a muzzle or a mask, that is their choice. They may do so. But nobody has the right to tell you to do so. The government are not medical professionals. They're not doctors. They're not nurses. They know nothing about medicine. They know nothing about infectious diseases. And we will resist all the way to jail. Because Christ has saved us from the gates of hell. Verse 6. This is the generation of them that seek him. And by the way, I've said this twice while preaching this year. And there's no boasting in this. But I'm boasting in Christ. Never did I ever think in my life that it would be necessary for a preacher, pastor, teacher, anybody from a pulpit in the church to remind us we have never missed one Lord's Day this year. Ever since I was born in 1959, why would there even be a reason to miss a Lord's Day, though I wasn't a Christian until 91? We have never missed one Lord's Day in the year 2020. We have always faithfully met. And we have never treated each other like lepers. Like lepers. We have never forsaken the gathering of the saints. And we, of course, we have never made it a habit out of it. Not one day. I'm boasting in the Lord in that. I praise God that you're all here. I praise Him and I boast in the glory of God for that. And we thank Christ who died for us so that we may... And let me say this else, Christians. I'm thankful for the First Amendment. We greatly benefit from it. But know this. We do not need the Constitution, nor the First Amendment, nor America to gather as Christians. Even if we lost the First Amendment, which, by the way, is an economical document, religious pluralism, it guarantees equal rights for every religion. So it's really not pro-Christ. It's really not Christ only. It's not Christ alone, though we greatly benefit from it. But even if we did not have the Constitution next year, I want you to know, church, we will still meet. Even if we have to go underground, church, we will still meet. Because we are Christians first, Americans last. Verse 6 says, This is the generation of them that seek him. This is the generation that seeks God. That they that seek the face of Jacob, Selah, press pause. We are a church that seeks him. To seek thy face of Jacob, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the son of seed of David, Christ Jesus, our King Jesus. We seek him. The scriptures clearly state that the unsaved world are not able to save him, to seek him. So I don't, I don't understand. What is this saying, though? There, those, there is a generation that can seek him, but the scriptures clearly warn that there is a people that cannot seek him. Because let me read this passage. Romans 3, chapter 10, verse 12. As it is written, very important when it says that, as it is written, just like Jesus when he rebuked Satan, what did he use? He used the word of God. He told Satan, as it is written. That's a powerful preface right there. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, not even this knucklehead right here. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. 
They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not even one. Bill Retz could not seek God and I could not do good until God allowed me to seek him. And when I do good, it's only by the grace of God that he has actually enabled me to do good because of his grace. So then if the unregenerate cannot seek God, then who is it that David speaks of here in verse 6, saying that they seek thy face, O Jacob? In context, he's referring to God's elect, to those that are chosen by God. The saints in the Old Testament will be in heaven with us, just as the saints in the New Covenant will be with us. The only difference is, is the path has become more narrow. It's become more difficult because it says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to my Father except through me. Jesus also said, for those of you red-letter-only Christians or red-letter-only professing Christians out there that might be listening to this sermon, Jesus also said that the way to hell is broad and wide. The way to destruction is huge. And many will go through it. But the way to righteousness, the way to heaven, is narrow and difficult. And few will find it. I don't want to be the many. I want to be the few. By the grace of God, we are the few. I know the Marines call themselves the few, the proud, the Marines. Thank God for the Marines, right? Amen? But it would be wrong for us to say the few, the proud, the Christians. But I will say this. I'm one of the few. And you're one of the few. And I'm proud of my God. I'm proud of Christ. I'm going to boast in him all the way, I pray, by his grace to my coffin or my urn. In context, he's again, he's referring to God's elect. Next is verses 7 through 10. I just think that was a beautiful passage that the Lord has given us from verse 3b, all the soteriology, who stands on that hill, who stands in his presence. And now we're going to go on to verse 7 through 10, which is the glorious king, a divine warrior. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Admittedly, this verse that, I'm, that I just read, I'm going to give you a big, I don't know. I'm going to say, I don't know what it means. I don't. I cracked open a lot of commentaries. I looked through Logos now that I have that because you guys paid for it. Thank you. And I also pulled up a lot of books out of the shelves. And I will read you what many theologians, many scholars said. Who's right? I don't know. But I will tell you what we do have to get right after I explain these. These are differences. No big deal. Certainly nothing to divide over. Some scholars say it's a perspective of the arks returning from battle. Some believe verse 7 is relating to David's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Some say it's because of the mentioning of the heads, the gates, and the doors in this verse, that it's a dramatization or a theophany in the temple, because a theophany is a visible manifestation of God. It talks about heads, gates, and doors. Could be right. Some believe David is literally addressing the gates of the temple that would soon be opened up. Or that we may be referring to the ancient doors of Jerusalem. Some believe this phrase, the return of the king of glory shall come in, refers to the Lord's uh, return. 
the Lord in battle as he returns in victory. Nonetheless, whatever you believe, which doesn't matter to me, but what we must not get wrong and what we must understand, it is essential, is who is this king of glory that shall come in? That is the rhetorical question. Who is this king of glory that shall come in? Verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. In part, the answer is this. We're starting to sound like a rhyme. Because the book of Proverbs is full of rhymes. Maybe we'll teach that next. I don't know. I actually taught that at a church. And it has a lot of rhymes in Proverbs. But the answer to who is this king of glory, this king of glory is the Lord strong and mighty. He is the Lord mighty in battle. He is the Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. We're not done yet. And to summarize his attributes of this king in context, this king of glory is Jehovah, the God of the covenant people. He brings us blessings. He brings us victory. He is our warrior. He is our God. He is our Savior, if you're saved. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the strong God Almighty, strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. He is a divine warrior. And he brings vindication to his people. Exodus 15, 2-3 says, The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare Him a habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. Isaiah 10.21 The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto a mighty God. Jeremiah 32.18 Thou shewest loving kindness in thousands, and recompenset the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Who is this God of glory? Who is this King of glory? We're still saying it. We're still learning here. Well, you already know. Our king is the host of the stars and constellations. It says in Isaiah 40, 26, Lift up your eyes on him and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, just like the stars, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Jeremiah two ten through 11. The earth quakes before him. The earth quakes before God and because of God. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon glow, grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army. And his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord will be great and very terrible. Who can endure it? The only ones that can is Christ's bride. In the next verse, David repeats what he said in verses 7 through 8. We're still moving on with the same rhetorical question. 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Verse 10, Who is this King of glory? He asks it again. The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Selah. This Lord of hosts, or Lord God of hosts, describes God's supremacy over all of creation and all of creatures in it. Hosea 12.5 says, That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is His memorable name. Amos 4.13 says, For behold, He who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what His, what his thought is, and makes the morning darkness... Who's, who treads the high places of the earth, the God of hosts is his name. And the Lord of hosts is especially supreme and sovereign over his heavenly armies and his matchless majesty. Joshua 5.14 says, He said, No, but as commander, as commander, capital C, of the army of the Lord, I have come now. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth in worship and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen, And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And so they asked, Who is this King of glory? And we answer, The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. This is our Lord who redeems his people and overthrows his foes. This is our Lord, the King in his glory, the God of total effective power, strong and mighty in battle. That is the King of glory. Or as another said, and I quote, He holds the scepter of universal dominion in his nail-pierced hand, close quote. Christ, this is the King of Glory. Christ is the King of Glory. Father, thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you, Father, for the creation. Thank you for your majesty. Thank you for your supremacy. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for Christ, the King of Glory, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Thank you for Christ, who is the bridegroom of this church. Thank you for your Holy Spirit for manifesting your means of grace. Thank you that you will, are going to now next, you're going to show us your gospel through the visible manifestation of your gospel, through your means of grace, through your Lord's Supper, through your Holy Communion. I pray our hearts would be ready, repented, humbled, broken, fixed upon you. Lord, we do the rest of this service for the glory of you as we exalt Christ, the King of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.